This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show! Welcome everybody to Comics in Black and White. With me this week is, uh, is Dennis Chandler talking about Poison Elves. And you're actually going to be with me in, in uh, our next episode in a couple of weeks uh, talking about uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. So everybody start reading Lone Wolf and Cub uh, to prepare for that. I've read a little bit of it and I love it already. But we're talking about Poison Elves this week. So when we go through this, I, re- I read the five issues, but as I went on, I kind of started reading a little bit quicker. Um so I'll, I'll let you kind of talk more about the story and stuff. The part that definitely interested me the most is the guy who wrote it and talking about that and then kind of the perspective it gives on indie comics. So this is like mid nineties. Well, he finished it in 2004. So it's been 13 years since I've actively read it. So I did reread the, the first six issues this weekend. So <laughs> I, I am, I am on that. But as you can see in some of the issues, it gets pretty verbose as 90 comics were meant to be or want to be. <laughs> <laughs> But some people like that. Yeah, he even mentioned that in one of these. Some people have come up to me at cons and say, I don't like it when you write all these words. And he says tough. Yeah, did you read down there in the Indicia where he's sitting there? It's like, anybody that copies this was going to be flayed by the, you know, their skin off and dipped in acid. And da, 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 da. He's got, like, stuff that like that all throughout it. <laughs> it's hilarious. And then I love, you know, the letters page is called Death Threats. And there was actually a book published called death threats and they reprinted all the starting notes for people to read so he can go through his life apparently he was considered a big deal i didn't realize that after until i got to researching it this week but in indie comics he was they, they and you know the, the thing i was reading said he was a legend but you know that could be a little bit biased on the writer but uh, and the guy you were just talking about is drew hayes who I had never heard of Poison Elves. I'd never heard of Drew Hayes. And you said, hey, I got these black and white 90s comics that I want you to read. And you sent them my way. Um, And the most interesting thing about this to me right now is definitely Drew Hayes. Um, So you were just saying that he was somewhat of a legend at that time. Uh, The little bit of of reading I was able to do on him was interesting. And I saw that he he even had a kind of back and forth fake feud with Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah, they mentioned that that in their letters pages they kind of went after each other, but it was all in like a joke or something. And it's been uh, 15 years since I've read it, so I don't remember that. And I don't know where in you know Brian Michael Bendis's letter pages that would have been, but I do remember. And I th- I don't think he was calling him out by name, but it's kind of like oh what was that been the mid 90s? I don't know what he was writing then, but he was calling him out as that writer of, so it was never in name. Never mentioned that they know each other. But it was in there, so. That's what. Yeah, I noticed that in the. Uh, he has w- one of the things that I think is interesting about this book is he starts off with the uh, the starting note, um, which is just like his rambling about stuff basically, and and those are interesting. And they've published a book of the starting notes, which uh, you you mentioned. Um, that I might actually pick up at some point, just because that sounds really damned interesting. And then you also get the letter pages, like once you get a few issues in, you start getting that. So you get the comic, but you get the starting note, which is pretty substantial, and letters pages, which letters pages can be pretty interesting too. Yeah, I think those started with issue four. So like at the end of issues one, two, and three, you kind of get a history of this world. 
And I guess you have to remember this is like the early 90s. I think it started in 90. Well, okay, get a little background. 96 so was the first issue. The 96 was the first issue, but we're reading actually the second series. So he previously did issue self-published, which is, you know, influenced by uh, Cerebus, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, he self-published the first 20 issues, and those are called the Mulehide years, and that's because the he published them under his own company called Mulehide Graphics. And the first, and I think this has to be a, a rite of passage for indie any indie comic. The first ten issues were magazine sized, <laughs> <laughs> right? So, and then uh, from issues eleven through twenty, they went to regular comic size. And the first eight issues were called I Lucifer, and Lucifer is the name of the main character. He's the he's the elf, but uh, he got a fa- he got a letter from his one of his fans that his mother had found his comic collection saw the name I, Lucifer, and associated it with uh, Satan, even though it's spelled differently, and threw him out. So uh, with issue nine, it went to Poison Elves. And uh, I have not read those. Uh, they were, since they were self-published, they are quite uh, rare, not as rare as the first four issues of TMNT. Because uh, Drew Hayes makes mention in his starting notes in the second series, which we're talking about, where he sat on thousands of them for years that nobody wanted, and now everybody wants them. And at the time, they were selling for about $25 to $30 each. Now, if you go on eBay, they're anywhere from 50 to 75 I think I saw a set of 1 to 20 that was in decent shape that somebody was wanting $500 for. So, um, so that's where we are on that. So, yeah, so this, this the second series he started in 96. An interesting thing is he started out with Sirius. Um, a independent comic publisher at the time uh, that was better well known for publishing Dawn, which was um, Joseph Michael Linzer. And that's how I was introduced to Poison Elves because I, you know, had heard about Dawn, gotten to that, and you saw the ads in it for Poison Elves. And I also had a buddy at the time that had gotten into it and showed it to me. Um, this was a buddy I played Magic with, and you know, maybe maybe we'll, you know, can get into some more background then. So, yeah, like at the early 90s, uh, Drew Hayes is actually a year older than me. So we're kind of contemporaries in some of the stuff that was influencing us at the time. You know, at that time, Magic, the gathering, the card game had been out for, like, I think two or three years. And so, you know, you got all my buddies and I were playing Magic. You got that medieval setting. It's the early 90s. Um, so I think I was I was 23, 24, 25. So I'd been playing. I'd done Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s. And Lucifer, the main character of Poison Elves, is actually Drew Hayes's Dungeons and Dragons character that he played. He just transferred it over to comics when he when he decided to take that avenue for his uh, employment. Or, or if you read the starting notes, his outlet for his angst of life. <laughs> yeah, if you read the starting notes, you'll 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 figure out what we're saying there on that. Um, so, if you if you get into his history, you find out he was influenced. Poison Elves was influenced by Dungeons and Dragons, ElfQuest, and Cerebus. I think you've talked about Cerebus. So, can you can you see any of that influence in any of this? To an extent. Um... I think that a big way that Cerebus influenced uh, other, you know, like the things that followed it was really just to have the guts to go out there and do your own thing like that and not kind of be tied down into 
you know, trying to be commercial or trying to make something that sells. Um, I can kind of see some some things that I could relate a little bit to Cerebus. Cerebus kind of caught me off guard because I, I had no clue what to expect of it. And then to see him being in these kind of, uh, I don't know, like medieval times, feeling times without it ever specifically being said what time it's in. Um, you know, th this kind of has a similar feel. You don't exactly know what time you're in. Everything's kind of different and tweaked. Uh, violence is kind of the way of life. Um, I thought it was interesting in this, too, that you have the the investigator that is trying to, uh, like, heighten the level of investigation. You know, he, he talks about an issue. I think it was in issue five. Um, I didn't get issue six from you, so I didn't quite finish the whole arc. But it's his. he's basically pitching why, uh, you know, whoever's in charge here should be funding him for another year. Uh, so that way he can find these assassins. And to me, this is actually where the story starts to get more interesting is when you get an issue five. Uh, some of the earlier issues just really feel like Drew Hayes is pissed off at life. He has this kind of idealized view of himself and, you know, like what he is in his mind's eye. And he's throwing that on the page and like, you know, he's pissed off at life and he wants to, you know, it's a little scary when you look at it, you're like, I kind of seems like he wants to kill a lot of people but at least he's making comics i guess yeah poison owls is definitely his outlet i mean if you read through the starting notes i think issue four he tells you that he it's issue four issue five and starting notes he tells you that he's okay i'm getting a divorce from my wife so you know in 96 that would mean he's 25 he, he has a daughter getting a divorce it's all pissed off bitterness Whatever it is, it's the '90s. It's very emo. Um, but yeah, like the first four issues are kind of setting up backstory because he's basically, I think he says in his first starting notes that you don't have to read the first 20 issues. So the first one's just, you know, setting up who's Lucifer, what's his mood. And actually, when I was reading that, I was rereading before I sent them to you, and I thought, hmm, I remember Paul's comments on uh, Harbinger Four. Was it four or five? The one with Rexo, and I'm like, and you get to the scene where he just, uh, the assassin takes his girl, current girlfriend hostage, and he's like, mm -hmm. all right, and just shoots her. And I'm like, oh, no, Paul's not going to like that. <laughs> that didn't bother me as much. So what, what you're mentioning in Harbinger was uh, they inexplicably also, by the way, totally inexplicably go into space out of the blue. Um, and Rexo is this guy who's half robot. And he's uh, he's basically pissed off because he doesn't have a penis anymore. So he wants to cut off the attractive female's breasts because he's angry at life. That That's more where I had the problem with that is that is incredibly misogynistic. It's not just that he wanted to hurt somebody or kill somebody. It's the um, it's you know, it's your fault for being a woman that I can't have sex. So I want to mutilate you like that's pretty messed up. And that's really what it I mean. When you break down what they're saying in that book, that's what it's saying. That's screwed up stuff. And this, like, I, you know, you can have problems with, with that first, uh, well, the first issue, I guess, in that scene. Uh, there's definitely some things that, like, I, like, look, it's kind of, you know, pushing boundaries. But, um, eh, you know, I mean, him just shooting her like that is, uh, it's setting his character as, you know, I mean, obviously he was already displeased with her, but it's more of like, uh, if you piss me off, like nothing is sacred, I'll kill whatever pisses me off, basically. 
So I felt like it was kind of different. Like it wasn't so much about being misogynistic, like you're a woman, you don't matter or something like that as much as, um, yeah, I'm pretty much done with these people. So I'm going to kill anybody that gets in my way and then I'm going to go kill you dwarf. And then, you know, it leads on from there. So it was kind of different. It didn't really, it didn't bother me in the same way. I didn't think it was speaking the same thing, you know? Okay. Well, yeah, maybe we should just kind of I'll give a brief overview of these like first five issues. And um, for some reason, I was confusing issue five with issue six. So the end of issue five is when he's bringing in, he's hiring the new member of his team. Correct, Vito. Reading some of this kind of lost me a little bit because you can't. I don't know. Like I feel like his writing style and and his art style both kind of don't always make it clear where he's going with stuff. Um. Let's see, let's just start from the beginning. Let's talk about uh, issue one real quick, which we just touched on that a little bit. So basically in issue one, he's trying to live a normal life. He's trying to get away from... Uh, from... Well, he, was an, he was an assassin, mm-hmm. and he's tired of that life, and he's like, okay, I need to calm down. Yep. And, and um, I guess to give some background, if you if you read through the backstory, so these, you know, they're elves, and much like... Tolkien's elves, they're immortal unless there's something that kills them. So he, he's like a he's like 130, 133, I think is what his age is. So still very young considered by the elves. And he's been an assassin, a hired assassin, working for a king assassin, and he's like, Okay, I've seen some, you know, bad stuff. I need I need to kind of settle down and lead a normal life. So he goes to this town where nobody knows him, uh, and he becomes a fisherman. So he goes out for weeks at a time hauling in fish and coming back in for a few weeks and going back out. And, and the past three months, he's gotten a girlfriend. And as with, I guess, early love or angst and everything like that, every time he comes home, he finds that – or he's come home, and he's found that his girlfriend has taken the rent money. He, well, at first he finds the eviction notice, and he's mm-hmm. like, what the what the hell? He comes in there, and so you've got all these stoned-out, passed-out guys in his living room, front room, or anything. And then he he gets by them, you know, he steps on some of them, doesn't care, and all that, and then he confronts his girlfriend. And and I guess it's interesting how Drew Hayes portrays women in his comics, because you saw the one there, and you and you see um, uh, Cassie. Later on, and mm-hmm. so what's your impression of how Drew Hayes portrays women in comics? Uh, this is like his Torquala. <laughs> Anybody who reads Valiant and reads uh, Harbinger, the the new series of Harbinger, knows uh, the character Torque. They have a an arc where they go into Torquala, which is like it's his happy place in his head, basically. And uh, he, the character of Torque, grew up. Um, oh, I, I know that we've cleared up what what it was that he had but i mean he's he's a cripple basically um he has a specific condition i am i don't remember it again um but uh go listen to every one of the valiant central podcasts that we've recorded you'll find it in there somewhere don't worry there's only 116 um and so his happy place is this place of metal and babes and you know and all that kind of stuff um this is what this feels like to me especially this first issue i mean this to me is so much like He's pissed off at his life. Um, 
he I mean we just like you said he says a few issues later in the the beginning notes that he's getting divorced this is probably portraying a lot of how he feels about his uh his wife I'm guessing I don't know what's going on uh, the, the details of their relationship or their life or whatever obviously um we also know he has a kid so that adds more elements to his personal side of it but uh this just screams that he's fed up with with that relationship and that's spilling onto this page and that's where i was saying that like okay he he kills his girlfriend in this that's a little bit scary when you just can this thing just reeks of his own personal baggage you know exactly but it's like so anyway you see his girlfriend and she's just sitting in there in front of the mirror in a g-string and a few straps on her overflowing breast yeah a very small prop a very small bra (laughs) and and that seems to be the overall theme about you know for the first few issues of how he portrays women in there so it's 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 interesting from that perspective so anyway so he gets into this argument with her about where's the rent well you're gone and you're acting like such a bastard i just you know I'm, i'm spending the money so i can be happy because you're making my life so miserable so they're having an argument and as typical in independent 90s comics at the time, they're very verbose arguments where word balloons are multiple sentences <laughs> as they argue with each other. And in the midst of this argument, this dart comes flying by him, and he's like, what the F? And a dwarf then jumps through the window, and mayhem ensues. <laughs> yep, that's pretty much it. Um, and then he, so the dwarf is an assassin coming to get him. Um, they have a bit of a fight. He gets the girl and is starting to kill her. And he's like, all right. And then he shoots the girl. Uh, so calls the bluff there. The dwarf dives out the window, uh, while being shot at. He gets hit some in that process. And then, uh, good old Lucifer here just starts blasting all the humans that were, I guess, are they are they elves too? Like they don't have the crazy big ears like he does. No, those are all humans. So oh, yeah, they're all because the, yeah. she because she was human. So these are all her human buddies that she gets high with and stoned with. So he's like, he's like, I'm done with this and just offs them all. And I and I guess we got to take a step back because we're sitting here talking about elves and dwarves, but also guns. So this is like an interesting world that he portrays. Um, uh, Amaral Lynn, I think, is the name of it, and. It's it's kind of a combination. It's it's got elves, it's got dwarves, it's got trolls. Um, they fight with swords, they fight with um, knives, and you know items like that. There's magic, but there's also firearms. Yeah, because <laughs> and, and and not like flintlocks. I mean, this looks like a Glock, and actually Lucifer has a magical uh, fire uh, revolver that has endless bullets in it. Yeah. So while every, so while everybody else has to reload. He just keeps pulling the trigger, and it just keeps reloading. And I think somewhere in the, in the 20 issues that came before this um, detail how he acquired that gun. And again, it's like – and I got to suspect that Drew Hayes – and we, we kind of talk about – Drew, and I just want to go back to Drew Hayes. We kind of talked him in the past tense because he did pass away in 2007. Mm-hmm. So, so, so he's no longer – so – he was a child, you know, teenager in the 80s, like I was. So he played Dungeons and Dragons. I have to think that maybe he was a dungeon master. And, you know, for doing in comics, that's a great transition because, you 
know, running D&D games, you have to do world building. And he's already got this world built, so it's a combination of modern things and, you know, medieval. So you've got the elves, the, the dwarves, humans, swords and sorcery, but you also have guns in there. And what's interesting, if you look at the artwork, um, he's got all he's got other modern things thrown into this, like, medieval setting. So they still go out on, on ships and boats to, like, fish by hand by nets, but then when... Lucifer's chasing the dwarf. You see where there's like modern age trash cans, and there's like rock posters and strip club posters on on the walls behind him and everything. And so the details in the background, you see some modern life in this medieval setting. So it's 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 kind of interesting that way. So, but anyway, so he's he's shot his girlfriend because he didn't care because the dwarf took her prisoner. He's killed. He shot all the um her friends that were stoned there while he was away which comes into play later and he's injured the dwarf and now he's following him. So he's following the dwarf assassin. And that's pretty much the first issue because at the end of the issue, the dwarf goes to a, um, at, towards the end, he tracks him and they go to, a, an abandoned part of the town and the dwarf's calling out to somebody and Lucifer's just watching them. And while he's calling out, all of a sudden this portal opens and Lucifer's like, what the F? And as the dwarf goes through the, the portal, Lucifer follows after him. And you kind of now you see a part of the, the, the city that's been destroyed. You see a, a building that looks in perfect shape and these two individuals there. And it's like, well, who the hell are you? And why'd you bring him here? And, and basically say, well, since you're here, we're going to have to kill you. And that's how the issue ends. Yep, of course it ends with a shot with a, a very scantily clad, uh, big-breasted elf lady. Uh, and as you found out later, redheaded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things about his in, influences in this, uh, the the first starting notes here, he talks a lot about kind of his self-identity. He really self-identifies with some real like metal and, and um, more hardcore punk type of stuff. He is... Uh, insulting the type of people who watch MTV and think that they're watching, you know, real punk music or that kind of stuff. Um, I don't, he like, he, he has a real strong self identity and it's a lot of like, I'm into the, the, you know, the real shit. Nobody understands it. And they're, you know, they're not as, uh, as, you know, they, they, you know, they, they don't even understand. They don't measure up to this. And like, you see that so much in this. I mean, like you said, you, you mentioned the modern things, you know, the guy has a gun. Uh, it's a very modern gun, but he also wears like studded black leather and there's a, just so much metal influence in the, the fashions and stuff in this. Um, I don't know, re- reading this, the, the art and the design and stuff, there are some times that I'm pretty impressed by the art and a lot well, of there's, the times there's, it, some, there's some background stuff that just the detail in it. If you start looking at it, is very nice. Yeah. I think that's his, his strongest feature with with art like his his detail work in the background and stuff is just fantastic the way he uses line work and stuff like that um i think the downside is a lot of his uh you know and then it comes to taste but a lot of his um design elements it, it feels a lot like a uh really good high school artist you know it's like it's it hasn't matured, and I mean, he's pretty young, so that makes sense, but, you know. 
is it's pretty cool that like he did this indie book that had the, you know these just like really youthful you know he didn't have to mature it at all and he eventually got a, a deal with the publisher and then like all of his old stuff ended up being crazy valuable because it was so short printed yeah exactly the only thing i had to get used to his art was how he drew elves ears yeah they're, they're crazy long. <laughs> they're they're crazy long and and it what what kills me later in is like lucifer puts on the hood it's like what the hell does he do with his ears when he's got that hood <laughs> but it, but anyway to progress through the story so the second issue now you get now you kind of find out what's going on and this and this is where he, you know drew Hayes ties in the first 20 issues so what what you find out is this the dwarven assassin had come to the city on contract to kill lucifer from a countess and this the countess was married to one of uh, lucifer's former marks so lucifer had killed the mark they'd found out who it was so the countess had hired this dwarf to kill lucifer so but when you come to the city and i can't remember what the name of the city is you know the local assassins which only the guild of assassins would know about is in this place called sanctuary and that's where uh, Malachi and his brother, the two who you see at the end asking who the hell they are, they run it. And so they're sitting there. It's like they, they have a conversation with Lucifer and all that, and they realize who he is. He's an assassin, a fellow assassin and everything. So they, they, so they make him a deal. It's like, okay, you're an assassin. We need an assassin. The issue is, you know, we got the dwarf here, so we got one position, two of you. So you're going to fight to the death, and once you, once you, once the winner is there, then you got to fight one of our other assassins. You can't kill them, but they can kill you. You got to defeat them, and then you can join us. So Lucifer's like, oh, crap!" And then they heal the dwarf, <laughs> <laughs> right? So Lucifer's like, "Screw this!" So he pulls out his gun and shoots the dwarf 18 times. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's shocked and all that. And it's like, well, I guess that's one way of, of doing it. So then it's like, okay, on to the next part. So now he's fought him. They haven't healed Lucifer. So Lucifer's still a little injured from his previous encounter. And you find out that the assassin they want him to fight is the scantily clad uh, woman that you see at the end of the first issue, uh, Cassidy. Cassie. Or Cassie. Yes, Cassie. So it's like, oh, you got to fight her. And he's like, I can't hit a woman. And about that time, she punches him, and then it's on. And how, how would you describe the, the, the ensuing fight and how Lucifer um, gets uh, gets it over on her? Because they're pretty <laughs> equally matched. So, yeah, this this is interesting. And this, this goes – so in the first issue, I felt like they kind of pushed the boundaries with, with taste on sexism and stuff. And this fight, I think, is like – really just thrashing that um so this is going into the beginning of issue three also by the way um first of all the way he draws women i think he is like freakishly into legs um because he draws these legs like with crazy detailed muscles and pretty much always in fishnets and they're Um, and they're long all the women seem to be taller than the men yes yes she is very tall um now he starts off trying to combat her and her kicks by going after her knees. And then I'm pretty sure that kind of changes into him uh, 
doing really nasty things to her. It, am I looking at that art wrong? Like, is that what he's doing? Yeah, that's exactly what he does. Yeah, that's that's been pretty poor taste. <laughs> <laughs> this... But it does surprise, and I guess in any in a fight to the death, anything's fair. Yeah, and he's so he's not able to kill her. If he kills her, they'll kill him. Yeah, he can just subdue can... her, but she's a little too tough. She's like a legit assassin, so is it's hard to combat somebody that's trying to kill you and is fully capable of it with pulling punches, basically. Uh, so he starts off off guard because he doesn't expect to really get a fight from this woman, um, and they're laughing about that. And then he catches her leg and just straight up puts his hand in a place that is not appropriate. And they are all the, – the panel where they're shocked is pretty priceless, but I don't know. Like yeah. that's it's – Well, it's not, it's not like he puts it there and he injures her. He kind of tickles. He says coochie, coochie, coo. <laughs> and she says that, gasp. Yep, and – and she's so shocked, and then at that point's when he goes for the knee, and then he disables her knee, and, and thus he disables her and wins the fight. <laughs> yeah. But it's if you think about it, that's one way of doing it that's not been done before. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. So at that point, he's proved himself, and he's like, "Okay, you're going to join Sanctuary." And that's actually the name of the arc is Sanctuary, and so that's where you come in and you realize it's Sanctuary. Uh, and at this point, then you get into one of the things that Drew Hayes has been uh, – that a lot of people liked. So then they get into the negotiations. So instead of having you know, word balloons and an issue or two talking about the negotiations, Drew Hayes then launches into – I think it's four pages of prose, would you say? Even more and he than described, that, yeah. Yeah, and he describes the conversation they have, and it's the contract they draw they draw up. It's like, here's this, here's that. But part of it is, and this is his technique to give you the backstory, is they have to ask questions about like, what have you done in your past that's going to draw attention to us? And so that then allows, as a part of the story, for Lucifer to kind of go over the past, the the twenty issues basically that came before this, and. From what you can gather in that is that Lucifer there, – there was an assassination of, a, of an elven member of the High Council a couple of years ago that nobody knows who it was, and it's been totally mystery and everything. And they find out it's Lucifer, and it totally impresses them right? because this is like a high elven general, um, nobody, and it's totally mysterious, and it's like number one – uh, one of the number one issues at the Elven High Council is to find out how this happened. And they, when they find out that it was him, then it's like they just up their respect for him. And that's actually how – and you don't see it in these issues. And you actually don't see it. You see it for a couple uh, couple of more. But that's how uh, Lucifer gets his magical – that's how Lucifer got his magical sentient sword, Sinlock. So, again, this goes back to Dungeons & Dragons. It's an intelligent sword that – you can have a conversation with that has influence over the welder. Uh, 
so they're impressed with that, and then you kind of find out that one of the brothers is actually on the high council also. And this is where you kind of get into Drew Hayes' political thoughts because you find out that one of the brothers is on the high council because he handles the stuff. He handles the behind-the-scenes stuff, the non-public stuff that has to be done for the government. <laughs> but he's on the Elven High Council. And so they get through and they get the contract, and Lucifer then kind of joins them. And in these issues, in these issues, you also now you go back to the aftermath of the uh, the apartment fight, where now you meet Vito, and you meet the police of the the city that are investigating the scene of where these deaths occurred. And you find out that there's this detective, or a medieval detective, that's the thorn in Sanctuary's side who knows they exist, but he can't prove it. He knows it, and he's been investigating all these murders and these assassinations, but Sanctuary, since it's hidden, he can't prove anything. And so he's he shows up at the murder scene, and he's kind of going, why is there, you know, how do these deaths occur? Why is this woman dead? Why do we see broken glass inside the window? Why do we see, inside the apartment, why do we see broken glass? broken glass out of it why is there the start with poison and the whole premise of sanctuary is they don't want to draw attention to themselves right they're assassins they perform their duties don't bring attention and their main thorn that they can even no matter who they bribe they cannot get rid of this veto so they're setting up uh, Drew Hayes is now set up, okay, so, you know, Lucifer's part of Sanctuary, here's the antagonist veto. So these are the the, the opposing forces that are going to be draw out the story moving forward. Uh, so you got, you know, veto tracking them down, and, you know, they follow the elf tracks, and they're going, why is it in this abandoned, you know, why do they just end in this abandoned section? So that's the backstory on that. So then you come back to, you know, the Lucifer, and... You know, so so he's joined Sanctuary, and then and you thought the other issues could get offensive. Then they send him to training with Mister Mister Motto, and 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 how was that reading the issue with Mister Motto? Oh man, this issue is so racist. <laughs> oh man, it, this was this was probably yeah, it, the funnest it, issue it to read. read. Uh, the, the story going on is good. The but um, Mr. Moto, uh, they write him so stereotypically racist, um, and then it gets really hard to read when he gets his nose broken by Lucifer. So then, not only are they doing the racist swapping L's and R's and that type of thing, but then all the you know ends are turned into B's and stuff like that because his nose is broken. So he has like that he's talking through. Um, but there were parts of this, aside from it being incredibly racist, so now this book is like very sexist and racist. Um, God, there were some parts in this issue that were really good. So some of the scenes between them, like where he's trying to snatch the stone, he finally just punches him and grabs it out of the air. Uh, they're blowing the, uh, or they're, they're trying to inhale the smoke from the candle, I guess, or the incense back and forth, and finally Lucifer blows on it, so... Moto inhales it right in because it's also getting pushed towards him. Um, I, he kills the, <laughs> the, this part is the best, and this is, you know, one of the interesting things. While I'm on this note, because I just noticed it again, the page numbering 
isn't re- reset issue by issue. It keeps growing. And I thought that that was an interesting touch. And I think he – and what I wanted to go through, I did want to go through my back issues if he was doing that intentionally for the trade paperbacks because he was doing – he knew there was going to be six-issue pay, uh, trade paperbacks, and I yeah. noticed that too. It would make sense, and I, I think to me one of the things that it says if you're getting these as individual comics – and he's he's said this in the uh, in the starting notes that he's writing a story, and you know, he, he takes a lot of shots at other types of comics, um, but he, he's making it clear he's writing a big story. So I think that the page numbering also kind of adds to that. You know, he's saying that this is just a part in the story. Like you know, you're not on the tenth page of this issue; you're on the eightieth page of the story. You know. But uh, on the 89th page of the story, he is mimicking Mr. Moto's moves, and Mr. Moto starts to have a heart attack, and he keeps mimicking him. But just the way he does it is so good. You see Moto kind of start to shake, and then he's clutching his chest, and uh, Lucifer has the like the question mark thought balloon, but he just keeps on copying him all the way down to the ga- ground, the last gasp, and then says, Mr. Moto? <laughs> then when he realizes that Moto's dead, he realizes he's in trouble because Moto has this, uh, this, oh, what the hell do they call him? It's a bronze golem, I think. Yeah, yep. That's, that's, that's its servant, and it's like, if Mr. Moto comes to harm, the bronze golem, um, protects him. And, and I guess that's when, yeah, that's when it gets hilarious because, you know, Lucifer goes, okay, my knowledge of golems are, are after the, uh, owner or the, Whoever imbues them dies. I ha- there's 15 minutes until they they die, and he goes. I think I can avoid him for 10 minutes. So what am I gonna do for that other five? <laughs> and 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 I guess what this whole issue is is a parody of the Karate Kid. <laughs> but it, yeah, you're right. It is so racist. It's almost there's parts of it that are almost painful to read. Yeah, it is, it is pretty painful to read. Um, but and and I guess also now, I mean, just to kind of take a step back from the story. So we're, we keep talking about the starting notes, and the starting notes are half the issue, also. So also during this time, it's also the early '90s. So uh, I know for a lot of people, everybody's familiar with like Diamond, but at this time there was also Capital as a distributor of comics, and he goes into one of the starting notes at this time, going on about how. Diamond dropped him because he wasn't selling as many, and if it wasn't for Capital, he couldn't have done his series, the the, the Mule the Mulehide series, all the twenty issues. And this is all the start of his rant about Marvel at the time. So there's a nice there's a nice starting notes where he's talking about the industry, and he starts along about like don't blame Diamond, don't blame Capital, it's all Marvel that's doing this to you. And um. Did, did you catch that part in the starting notes? Yeah, I didn't read the whole thing, but I, I kind of glanced through it. I'm, I'm reading it again a little bit while you're talking about it, too. He talks about how Capital uh, didn't drop him when Diamond did, and eventually Diamond picked him back up, and the only reason that happened was because Capital didn't ditch him. And I know there's a lot of things now about how, like, Diamond, you know, the industry and everything – is ruining the comic industry, damaging stuff, and all this other stuff. But there was a time when there were other distributors, but 
you know, capital got run out of business. And this is kind of like we're getting into the mid-90s, and that's when the comic book industry kind of – the speculation kind of tanked the market. And, that, you know, that's when, like, Valiant got sold to Acclaim. Um, I think – was that the time when Marvel almost went bankrupt? I can't remember if that was the late 80s or the early 90s when Marvel almost went bankrupt. Uh, DC was kind of putting out crap. It was kind of a dark age of comics there in the early nine, you know, in the kind of the ninety four ninety five area of comics. Yeah, nineties comics were terrible. I'm a big and, proponent of that. <laughs> and, and it's interesting reading Drew's like starting pages because he's commenting on that. Because I think in issue three he talks about he went to San Diego Comic Con. He's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it was great. I was meeting people and all this, but I didn't realize it until after the fact because it was so exhausting and everything. And then, you know, after this issue is when he starts delving back into his more of his personal life. But it, it's it's interesting to read the starting notes because you can kind of see his frame of mind about when he was writing these and drawing these. Yeah, it's it's interesting for that and to give a little bit of an insight into what the comic world was back then. You know, like things about distributors. How else do you find out that kind of stuff except for stumbling across something like this? I do think at some point I will pick up uh, the the book of his starting notes just because it's interesting. It's it's such a view into the you know the mentality of somebody, but then like he sheds so much light onto these other things that uh, it's, it's hard to find stuff like that that is you know such such a like removal of a veil on something that is so far gone in the past and it's not documented in any way. Like, yeah, when I got I into Valiant uh, and wanted to know more about the original run of Valiant, I couldn't find out a damn thing. Looking at Wikipedia or Googling stuff, you get such just sparse, basic information. And I couldn't get anybody to take the time to tell me anything. The, the way I really learned about VH1 Valiant is over time, I built the whole collection. And building it and talking to people that way and then reading it and all that kind of stuff. That's really how I built up like what went on with this stuff. The people who, lo- who loved it could never get them to talk about it. Well, that's because you didn't know me because I was buying it off the shelf at the time. So I, I lived <laughs> through all of that. But to go through the starting page, so the book, I went on Amazon here and I found the book, and it's it's Death Threats, The Life and Times of a Comic Book Rock Star. So that's, that's the name of the book, and they just basically took – I mean, he did. I think this uh, series went for 79 issues, uh, and like the last 10 or 12 issues were sporadic because he had health issues at the time. Mm-hmm. But it it's, it takes those issues and it just collects all the starting notes, and that's just what he would write for every issue on the inside of the of the cover. And he did that for every issue. And uh, you got to go back, and it's like when he was doing the the Mulehide issues, he was doing those every other month. When he moved over to Sirius and was doing these, he was doing it every month. So he was writing, you know, a page of, "Hey, here's what's going on in my life right now, and here's my thoughts on the comic industry," every month. So you kind of almost have a real time history there of the early to mid '90s of what was going on from his viewpoint in the independent comics industry. And it's uh, yeah, all 100 of the starting notes from Poison Elves. And then he's got some from his uh, letter column, and his letter column was called Death Threats. That's so that's where the name of the book comes from. And you know, just to kind of take a little avenue, what's hilarious? So Death Threats started in issue four, and I think in issue four is when he starts talking about his uh, relationship with Dave Sims. So he knew Dave Sims, a Cerebus at the time, and he said, and I, I can't remember exactly what it was in the letter notes, but like he, 
him and Dave would draw a picture. So there, it looks like he drew a picture or some art of uh, Cerebus trying to steal a pitcher of beer from Lucifer. And so then he sent that to Dave Sims, and then Dave Sims sent him back some artwork showing where where Cerebus and Lucifer were, were either passed out or they were drunk in the gutter somewhere just sitting there drinking, having a good time like that and everything. So <laughs> it, I've never seen it. I've heard him mention it, but it would be interesting to see that kind of art. So, you know, even he was influenced by Dave Sims and, you know, he actually knew Dave Sims. And I, I think they appreciated each other's, you know, uh, series and characters. So so anyway, I think we've, we're, we've gotten through issue four. So issue four is like, yeah, Lucifer and Mr. Motto. So basically, yeah, he had to go to Mr. Motto because, you know, now you've joined the Guild of Assassins. Now we got to assess your skills. And he's like, I'm a damn assassin. I just killed this guy on the High Elven Council. And it's like, no, we need to assess your skills. So that's well, they send him off to Mr. Moto. And, and then at the end of this, you know, one of the brothers comes back and he's like, you know, three days later. I mean, because yeah, this is over three. And he sees like this house is demolished and all this destruction. And he's like, what the hell? <laughs> and he gets in there and he sees the head of the bronze golem and he finds Lucifer and you know Lucifer retell, you know recants the tale and it's like I don't know what the hell happened but this is what happened <laughs> all right it's like my laugh's just a bunch of crap and this is this is how it is and I think also issue 4 is when you read starting notes where Drew Hayes reveals that he's getting divorced so then we get on to issue 5 and you see a whole issue uh, of where Lucifer gets his first mission with the uh, with sanctuary, and you learn how they're how they're operating and how they get past Vito. And I think the be the beginning of this issue starts out with Vito talking. So he's the detective that's trying to find sanctuary, but he has no proof. And he's and he's talking to his his Jim Gordon because I got to have a Batman reference uh, about why he should be funded for another year. And at, you know, at the end of it, finally, um, he gives his, you know, his commissioner gives him the approval for funding for another year. But interspersed between this, as, as you know, Vito says, "I need to find this." You see Lucifer donning his new uniform, uh, getting everything set, and then he appears in front of the other members of Sanctuary, and they're all in their assassin gear. And again. I don't see how a female can be dressed like that as an assassin. <laughs> maybe, oh. maybe, it's, maybe it's, it's to distract the target. <laughs> you, just, you have to have a lot of good costume tape, you know. Exactly. And, and and did you catch it in there also when you know he's going on his first mission and Cassie leaves him a little, hey, congratulations, good luck on your on your first mission, and then you know Lucifer writes a note. And, and with a dagger, you know, stabs it into her door and goes, "Hey, thanks for the note. Here's an, you know, an 18th century or whatever dagger. If you ever break into my room again, I'm going to rip your throat out." <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and then he goes on the mission to, um, I think, basically the, his target is somebody that's cheated on his wife or cheated on somebody. So anyway, so he, you know, basically he sneaks into this and. Just to get the, uh, you know, how supposed to highlight how good they are, he sneaks into this apartment where this man's sleeping with his wife in the bed, and he kills him while he's sleeping with his wife, and his wife never knows. And then when she wakes up in the morning, she finds him. 
And at this time, you know, Vito's like, hey, I can find this, I can do this. And every point that Vito makes, you see Lucifer performing the acts that, that shows what Vito's trying to find, but how Sanctuary covers it up. And I guess the, um, the, the, the key at the end you find is they have a, they have a necklace on them that's an onk. And as soon as they're finished with their mission, they pull the onk and they're instantly transported back to Sanctuary. So that's how they can go in to whatever situation, take out their target, and they get out without leaving a trace. And so now you've got now you've got the premise for how the assassins work. You've got the prem uh, you've got how the forces that are trying to catch Sanctuary are are working. And now you've got your uh, conflict that's going to be that you're going to work through over the next. I, I forget where this story arc ends. Uh, I don't know if it's another six issues or ten issues or twelve issues, but all this is setting up on how the story is going to progress until you get to the next level of the story. And I know you haven't read issue six, so I'm going to go into that a little bit. So now you get Lucifer's next mission. He goes on it. He successfully handles it. He comes back and you know, hey, he's talking to his buddies at the bar, and, and you find out the assassins have a full bar. Because <laughs> it's like you, you find it, they, you know, it's like they want to keep everybody happy because in the contract negotiations, uh, sanctuary takes sixty percent of the fee, and the assassin gets forty percent. So you know, Lucifer's all upset about that, but you come back and they get room, board, a full stocked bar, and everything because they're all happy. So there's one member of the assassins Lucifer hasn't met yet. So he shows up. And it's like somebody from Lucifer's past that he freaking hates. So he's in, he's in instant take him out mode. So they get to this fight, and during the, you know the climax of the fight, one of the brothers puts his gun up to Lucifer's head, and it's like I gotta enforce the rules. You kill him, I kill you. So they kind of have an informal truce, and then you find out that they both have a love interest in Cassie. So now you've got a past history; they hate each other. There's a love triangle going on. And then at the end of the issue, you, you see Vito talking to somebody, having him join the team. And if you go back to the first issue of Poison Elves, who the first two pages are somebody lament or talking about the fact that Lucifer's been dead for a year. This is like 30 or 40 years in the future. Lucifer's been dead for a year, and this is my name, and I'm writing the story about it and as soon as I finish writing the story I'm going to burn it because I, I just got to get it out of my system. Well you find out at the very last page of issue 6 which is the end of the first arc that Vito is hiring Lucifer's friend that is writing the memoir of Lucifer at the beginning of the first issue. So that sets up the story for like the next 12 to 18 issues. So now Lucifer's friend is on the police force that's trying to track him down and he's got this internal conflict with this person from his past that he hates, that he can't kill, because if he does, he gets killed in the assassins, but they're also the love interest of Cassie that he's starting to develop. And that's how everything kind of progress. and that's how Drew Hayes has kind of set it up for, like, the next 12, 24 issues. Quite an interesting comic. Quite an interesting uh, character, this Drew Hayes. Yeah, and I'm, I'm wondering if I ought to give you any other... Um, Adventures into the future, and I, I think I will just from the standpoint. So we've kind of talked a bit about how Drew Hayes draws women, and we kind of get his feelings on women and everything like that. 
But don't let it fool you. I think he's setting things up because in somewhere in the middle of the run, he turns Lucifer into a woman. <laughs> and, 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 and then you spend three issues where he's trying to figure out, it's like, why am I dressed like, how can I fight dressed like this? Where's the, I'm off balance. All my, <laughs> how do you fight with these in the way? <laughs> and it's freaking hilarious. It's it's very interesting. Uh, elves and stuff like that, like fantasy elements aren't really my cup of tea, so that right there is part of the reason that I could look at this and be like, well, this isn't really something I want to keep reading. Um, but you can, when you look past those kind of elements to a story, you know, the just the genre or the characteristics of the story even within the same genre, um, there's so many things that you can kind of look past and look into this and see uh so much about the writer so much about uh his commentary on what's going on in the comic industry and in his own life and stuff like that um i would definitely be like like i said it's interesting enough that i want to get the death threats book and read his crazy ramblings at the beginning of every issue i mean just the way he approaches everything the first few issues just feel like they scream so much of his rage of what's what his life is uh, he mentions that he, over the, the course of, I think he said five years before this started being published, he had been homeless for some of those years. Yes. Uh, and so we, we know at this point he's he had been homeless. He's not homeless anymore. Uh, he's married. He's getting divorced. He has a daughter. He's only 25, 26 years old, something like that. So, I mean, this guy's had a crazy life. And then you you know you look up about him and he has health issues he's pretty overweight he dies of uh complications uh, uh cardiac complications and it had something to do with sleep apnea yeah, um, which was from his weight so yeah yeah got sleep apnea from his weight which caused cardiac problems which resulted in his death so yeah <laughs> yeah so you look at all that and this is a, a really unhealthy guy i mean he's, he's not in good shape to die in that way at 37 years old um, he is full of anger and, but you look at these other elements of, you know, this kind of image he has of, even if it's not himself physically of like who he is in his own mind, you know, who, who he, maybe who he wants to be or who he would be if he wasn't bound by all these issues and stuff like that. Um, it's just, it's terribly interesting to me. Um, and I, I'm going to have it. You mentioned at the beginning of our recording here that he was, uh, well, in some of your research, you saw that he's a legend in the comic industry. Well, in the independent comic industry. Those, you know, like that could be overstated, like you said, um, but obviously he had more going on than just, uh, than just making this quirky indie comic that had a niche following that. You know, the the first twenty issues are very valuable because they were so short printed. So it's it's an interesting one. I would really like to find out more about him. He had a difficult life, and you know, Poison Elves is how he channeled, you know, all the issues he was facing, and you can kind of see it in that. But it's like you said. I mean, you see the little details in it, like where he took the first six issues, and it wasn't one through twenty-two or one through twenty-five. It's issue he kept sequentially numbered it, and he specifically called out in his you know, letters and starting notes that I'm telling the story and I'm going to tell it how I'm going to tell it. And if it takes 
30 issues to tell one scene. By God, I'm going to tell the I'm going to tell one scene in 30 issues, and you're going to buy it if you like it. You know, we've gotten through that, and then there's more stuff that kind of comes out of characters he introduces, and you start to see kind of more of the Dungeons and Dragons theme, you know, from the 80s in there about. And I don't want to give some of the way because you kind of find out some more of the stuff, uh, his protectors and things that he's acquired, just like you would in a Dungeons & Dragons scenario where you're acquiring weapons, you're acquiring armors, you're acquiring artifacts. And you can see that develop in as a child of the 80s and, and doing Dungeons & Dragons, I can appreciate that. I don't, you know, I don't know if many modern or current comic readers that are younger and all that, I don't know how big D&D is. You know nowadays and everything so but that was one of the aspects that was appealing to me for this series is the D D influence it, it was something i grew up with and it was great and then also at the time as i mentioned you know earlier when we were talking it was like magic so you know we're going to get magic playing the game of magic at the time and getting cards and artifacts and building all that and there's a there's a little bit in that but it was a really you know at the time you know 20 year olds the geeks uh, the comic nerds and everything like that. That's what we were doing. We were playing, or at least I was and my friends, we were playing Magic. So we'd kind of gone back into our D&D roots and just kind of fed into it. So it was kind of like the perfect comic for those of us in that lifestyle at the time. So you were buying this when it came out? Yes, I was buying this off the rack. I think I got introduced to it when issue three was on the rack. Mm-hmm. And at the time... I, I got a second printing of Poison Elves number one, but you know all the rest of them I bought off the rack, and that's in my collection. So I bought them at cover price when they were coming out, and it was it was great for like I think the first twenty or thirty issues they were all monthly, but then his health condition started kicking in, and it got a little irregular after that. So you'd get one every other month, every third month, fourth month, you know. He um, was kind of kind of mimicking Image at the time, but he had a legitimate reason. For, for missing deadline. Yeah, such an interesting character. I looked up while we were talking. We, you know, we we mentioned his uh, fake feud with Brian Michael Bendis, and I was kind of wondering where Bendis was in, in his career at this time, because obviously Bendis now is one of like the names in comics, uh, and he's been with Marvel for a long time now. Uh, but this was before that, before his uh, Marvel days. Um, he was writing, I think it was Jinx. I had the, the page up and I lost it. Yeah, Jinx. And this was right about the time, uh, it looks like in a year or so after this, he ends up with Image writing Jinx. So he goes from Caliber Comics to, to Image Comics. So, you know, going up to a bigger publisher. And I'm assuming that this was the time where Image was really in its heyday. Uh, and was making. Well, I guess I guess it depends on what you define as heyday. Is putting out crap that uh, worth nothing now? How large they were, how you know how how much money they made, that kind of thing. Not not quality wise. I certainly do not think that '90s Image comics were high quality, in my opinion. Um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I'll, this was it, before before Bendis really blew up. Basically, it looks like. I mean, it was about 2000. Or so that uh, he ends up with Marvel. Power starts in 2000. Um, so you know, it was a little before he really started getting uh, getting to the stature that he ends up being at. You know now. 
Yeah, like 2000 looks like kind of the turning point for Bendis. Like he starts getting into Marvel and powers and all that kind of stuff that he's really well known for. Yeah, I'm trying to look at when, yeah, uh, Poison Elves, I think, went to... I don't know if it made it to two, to 2000 or not. But I will say, you know, just to kind of continue on that, back in uh, about, I think, two, 2013, his daughter gave the blessing for Ape Comics to continue on with Poison Elves, so... Um, and they published three issues through Ape, and I think then the owner of Ape then moved to IDW, and there hasn't been anything else on it. So it kind of it kind of concluded the cliffhanger on issue seventy nine, I think, which was published in the late eighties. I mean, the late nineties. Um, but it was the last one by Drew Hayes before he died, and then it was just he ended it on a cliffhanger, and that was that. And they were trying to give it some resolution and continue it on. And it lasted for three issues, and now it's kind of in limbo again. Crazy story. I'm glad you brought this up to me. You know, the things that we've talked about on this podcast so far have been either things that I've really liked or things that I wanted to get into that were kind of bigger bigger in stature. So Poison Elves is something that I had never heard of, and I think that a lot of people probably have never heard of this. Uh, so it was very interesting to dive into something that was just completely off my radar uh, and something that really took me into a, a realm of comics that that I'm not familiar with. Well, yeah, it's a great independent uh, '90s uh, black and white comic. Uh, a lot of, you know, like I said, some people consider him a legend. Uh, I did it a great read. If you're a fan of the classic D and D back from the '80s, before you know, with TSR before it got bought by Wizards of the Coast, traditional Dungeons and Dragons, it's a great story. You got to put up with some of the uh, some of the stuff we we saw because you know in today's world he's not very PC. There's some racist stuff in there. There's some you know things against you know how he portrays women that may offend some people and all that. I think he has a deep respect for women, but at the time he was having issues, <laughs> and he definitely put his issues in the story. Yeah, and on top are. of that, when you look at the context of the time it makes it make a little bit more sense. Like, yeah, all of his female characters have huge breasts that are hardly covered. What was Image doing at the time? Like, it was all well, over comics at the time. Yeah, it was the bad girl. So you had Lady Death, uh, Dawn. Um, I mean, like, Angela from Spawn at the time. Uh, you know, you know, I don't, you know, honestly, I still don't know if it's really improved much in today's comics about how they, you know, you see the male superheroes or the male characters all armored up and costumed up, and then it's like female characters have got to be like scantily clad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and he took it to the extreme. He g-strings, fishnets, and strategically placed bands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but again, that was the '90s. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I always kind of laugh about is they're wearing G-strings and he draws a little bit of butt crack that comes out above it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And some people were like all a, a tittle about like, what was it, the uh, the slight butt crack in, um, in Valiant's um, Britannia? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it, that hasn't got anything on Poison Elves. Uh, I made fun of that a lot, the uh, the quality of the side boob and butt crack in Britannia. <laughs> 
but I but I but I will say so if if you if you if you read the first three issues give a history of the world of poison elves and it talks about um, how the world was created and the first creatures were trolls and trolls came and they were destroying everything and then the great creator took a third of the trolls threw them in a pit that burned off all the evil and that's where the elves came from so the elves came and they fought back the trolls and you get the ten steps and and that's how they secure everything once you get past the sanctuary story you start to get into the more mythic part of poison elves and the troll and, and maybe this is the Tolkien influence but the later half of poison elves deals with the possibility of the trolls coming back and the elves having to and Lucifer being put in in the position of having to find out if this the legend you know this the le- legend or these these legendary creatures are coming back and threatening the entire world so the story of Lucifer gets bigger once you get past this personal issue of the assassins and his you know the love triangles and things um, Drew Hayes tries to make it a little bit more epic mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and in the, the Lord of the Rings tradition. You definitely make it sound quite a bit more interesting. I mean, to, to know this other stuff is coming, but even having you talk about what went on in these five issues that I read, uh, there's a lot of stuff that just kind of went got past me either because of the 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 art or just my lack of familiarity with uh, you know with all the things that it's referencing. So uh, it definitely sounds like something that could be pretty interesting. Uh, so question I have. For you is you read this when it came out. You just reread the first six issues, so it'd been a long time. How do you? How did it hold up to you? Like you, your recollection of, of how much you loved it when it came out. What was your your take on it the second time? I actually enjoyed it the second time because uh, you know I got it. The one of the reasons I got it when I originally read it in the '90s was to be something different. Uh, I didn't really start getting into comics until probably 91. I think that was when Jim Lee's X-Men title came out, the the the, the second one, the takeover Uncanny. That's when I got drawn into comics, and so I was reading, you know, the Marvels, the typical Marvel stuff, the DC stuff, and everything, the you know, the Cape and Cows, and you know, then you know, I got into Valiant, and then I got into Image, you know, but you know. And I'd been into it for three or four years, and it was all kind of the same. You know, you know, Valiant was different and everything, but you know, this was like almost rebellious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's it's black and white. You you seeing how he, he the violence in it, um, you know how he's treating women. You know, maybe you know maybe I had you know maybe I had issues with women at the time, and I was of the He-Man's Women Haters Club, and it's like, yeah, this is what I think of them. And everything. So I was more reading it for it to be something different. And, you know, I didn't appreciate the starting notes and everything like that. And now, like 20, 30 years later, it's, you know, I noticed the little things in the art. Um, you, know, you know, after having 20 years or 20 or 30 years of comic reading and, and now diving into different stuff, I can appreciate the art. I know the whole story. I know the whole background. I knew Drew, Drew Hayes' history, so I can read it with appreciation of kind of his mindset of what he's doing with it and you know i i when i was going back to get to, to read it reread it i was intentionally thinking the art's not going to hold up i'm not going to like the art it's going to be 
it's not going to be you know good as good as what I'm used to now seeing with some of the stuff coming out. But you know, I got to doing it, and it's like I like this art. I like the details he puts in there. I, I started noticing, you know, he would do posters and pictures in the background. He put throw in all the details, mm-hmm. and he was doing this monthly. Yeah, and he's doing it all himself too. I mean, like, yeah. he talks about the the help that he gets because now he's with Sirius. One of the things that stood out to me too, that and he mentioned it, is they took his uh, his lettering and they turned it into a program so he could type it up. And there are quite a few times where the the way the letters are spaced is just so painful to look at. It's so <laughs> it's so like, look what I can do. I can evenly space this all, and it looks like shit. <laughs> yeah, I did notice that, but yeah, I mean, because yeah, he was hand lettering everything also, and so they gave him this computer program where he could just type it in and would do all the letters. So that took the lettering. Well, actually, I think he what he said he had somebody else doing the lettering. So I guess he would write the script and he would do yeah, the they art. Yeah, they would be able to type, type it up it for him. Out. Yeah, so I mean, that's that's invaluable. You're doing a comic book practically by yourself, and then to have somebody basically take the lettering completely off your plate that's a huge amount of time and to have it be consistent with your style like that that's pretty huge uh it, it's funny to me to go through the 90s stuff especially and you see where there were like clear technological advancements and how the creativity at times gets just demolished by technological advancements because it gets so easy to do things that people don't have that challenge fine-tuning them anymore but they haven't like they haven't pushed this technology to its boundaries yet uh an example of something else i tried to read uh the uh, ultimate spider-man that i just was mentioning bendis that's what he started writing for marvel in 2000 and the art was just horrendous it just was so just uh there was just something just felt so wrong with it the colors well, were just so flat and just oh my gosh and the like you couldn't comic art should tell you what's going on to some extent and there they would have art in there that you didn't even have a sense of what direction the character was moving in because it was just so poorly done yeah i mean that's when they i mean cuz yeah the, this time of drew hayes that's when you're starting to get into the digital coloring mm-hmm. i remember that uh, that transition, and that was one of the things that drew me to Poison Elves are the covers. So the comic's black and white, but he would do awesome covers in color, mm-hmm. and and it would be it would be stark. I mean, his whites were white, and you know he do he, it's like I'm looking at some of the covers now, and he had this cover he's drawn one of the, the I think Cassie on there, and you know she's all in white, everything's in white except her bra is green and her hair's red and her lips are red, and that's just all contrasted there and it just pops on that cover but everybody else was moving the digital this is also the time when you were moving from the newsprint type of paper to the the slick paper that i think would do color would pop colors better but it just didn't have the same effect as older comics Mm -hmm. would have it was on the um the pulp Uh, you know it's not actually wasn't pulp but the newsprint yeah. So, so all his comics were still on newsprint, so you get that nice classic uh, comic feel and that comic smell to it, and it's 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 just a different feel and a different look at it. And you know, I I, I don't I, I'm trying to figure out how to describe his artwork. I wouldn't call it scratchy. Um, it was it did seem to be elongated in the vertical. You know, it seemed more vertical than horizontal. Uh, and but you know. 
you know, black and white comics, I mean, he's he's having to do cross-hatching. He's having to portray depth and all that just from the ink, not from the color. And there's a nice appreciation for that, for what he's what he's done in that. And I and I think that's kind of what you're seeing when you're talking about the, the uh, ultimate Spider-Man mm-hmm. is you don't have those little artistic cues in it that had been done for previous years when he didn't have that digital coloring to convey depth and curvature and things. So it's, 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 I like his art. Now I didn't think it would hold up and I was pleasantly surprised when I went back and read these six issues about how they are. The art for me is held up just, you know, I, I think you could publish it today. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are things in the art that I think are a little, a little, less developed or a little weaker but there are parts of it that are just so good too that uh yeah i think that all in all you know if if i picked up a comic today and this was the art i'd be fine with it you know i mean there, there's enough parts of it that are really good that you know the the, the parts that are well that that's a little cheesy maybe or something i don't know whatever um you look past those parts because there's so so many good things to see in it uh Terry Moore, we've we've talked about. I've had two episodes of this podcast about um, Rachel Rising, and uh, one of my friends thinks that the art looks like Chicken Scratch. Just can't stand well, it, and I don't get slap, that at all. You need to slap beautiful. that friend upside the head because Terry Moore just draws some beautiful, beautiful characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's how I feel. There's such a simplicity to it because his books are all black and white, so he doesn't have all these other tools. That uh, that allow the art to look a certain way, and I think that when you have a limit and you have to push those limits, you really get some art going on there. And I, I think that that's you know when you get to the late '90s, early 2000s, where you start to get a lot of uh, tools that make the job easier, you see these these boundaries being taken away, and people haven't gotten up to those next boundaries yet, where they really start to push the boundaries and get back to being more artistic. Yeah. I mean, and I guess one of my judges for art is, and you know, and this is what I like about Terry Moore's is he can express, express through his faces without any words. So you can, you know, he, he does stories and he can have a whole page or, or a sequence of pages where there's no word balloons, but through the expressions, through his characters, you know what this, he progresses the story. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. If it was if it was chicken scratch, it wouldn't progress the story. Yeah, being able to say so much with such subtle images is it's a, a real art form. And uh, I've been going back and reading. Uh, you know, we're talking about old X Men. I've, I've been going back and reading old Claremont X Men, which those comics are a lot wordier than what. Uh, what got me into comics finally, because I've only been into comics for like five years. Um, and it took a while of reading it to really get used to it and to see that it's something different. It just offers something different. Uh, but yeah, there, there's kind of two ways you can go. You could use your words really well, or you could use the art really well and not really need a lot of words. I mean, we've seen some great issues over the last few years. There was a Ninjak issue recently that had almost no words in it. That was just great to read. Um, there was a Hawkeye issue with uh, David Aha doing the the art that was practically no words in it. That was just a beautiful issue. Yeah, and and those are the ones that that you know I kind of enjoy. Um, but 
you know that you know to kind of go back that's not, that's not drew hayes <laughs> he he's got to have words and all that but no i i agree it's like it's the, the artwork and you know sometimes i think i don't know when that came into the late 90s or early 2000s or earlier when you started getting the splash pages and the two-page spreads or the four-page spreads and it became more doing those trying to do those epic scenes as opposed to progressing the story it's like setting up this awesome scene okay now we're going to do pages set up this awesome scene and you kind of and oh now the comic's done and all they've done is like thrown a couple of punches yeah it's it's setting up spots instead of telling us you know a story you know what are your priorities um yeah so th- this has been a very interesting comic i'm, I'm gonna wrap us up here because i think we could just talk about comics in general for a lot longer um and uh, we'll have more time to do that in the future uh so uh, if people wanted to talk to you more on, on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, where can they find you? Oh, t- I do have a Twitter handle. I'm not on there often. Uh, I'm at U-T-E-N-G-R, Inger. Uh, Facebook, I'm in the um, Valiant Central group. Uh, usually where you can find me is on the Slack channel, but y'all have kind of restricted that a bit, haven't you? That's like invitation only now. Well, it was uh, – that. The invitations got sent out to everybody who was using the Valiant database when Martin created the Slack channel, and that was just that was the bump, and those expired as uh, eventually. Um, Mike Myers actually just got added in there because uh, I guess he didn't back then, but you know he mentioned it, so of course we want Mike in there, so we got him added in. Um, if anybody is interested in joining that Slack group, which Slack is something completely different, uh, if you don't know what it is, then google it and find it out on your own um you can send martin a message or tweet him at geekfine uh you can find me on twitter at who's paul uh the show is on twitter at cbw podcast um and you can email us uh at uh cbw podcast at outlook.com if you have any ideas questions feedback anything like that um it's always great to get suggestions on things to to read for this uh i tend to get just suggestions dumped on me all at once when I don't have a chance to write them down. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to remember any of that stuff. And then another one will pop up and be like, yep, we're doing that one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, this, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub. Yeah, I'm excited about that. So I've been wanting to read that since I started reading Usagi Yojimbo and absolutely love Usagi Yojimbo. Uh, and Lone Wolf and Cub was one of the things that, um, you know, I mean, they, they share a theme. It was influential on Usagi He's had stories that basically were, you know, telling lone wolf and cub stories in Usagi. It's Lone Goat and Kid. Um, yeah, I, I've read, I don't know, a handful of issues of it. I, I love it already. It's just, it's great. Um, so I'm very excited to talk about that. I have a lot more reading to do. Uh, I, what are you reading? I know I got the first Omnibus. Oh, uh, I got the little mini Dark Horse Um they're not. I don't know how it was originally printed in Japan in the original manga. Mm-hmm. So it's like 28 of the little short books. So I have all 28. So it took. I read it over the course of 12 years. Uh, that took me that long to get them all. And I think your omnibus. So that's 28 books. Your omnibus covers the first two books and a third of the third book. Okay. Perfect. So that's kind of where we're at. So. Yeah. So I've got those. I'm. Um, it's been a while since I've read those first ones, but uh, Lone Wolf and Cub is just oh, – it's beautiful. I mean the artwork is just 
beautiful. Yeah, one of the things I love is the stories are entertaining, but they also have lessons uh, attached to them, uh, which Usagi Ojimbo is the same thing. Like, you actually learn things about life and how you should live and stuff like that through these stories. Uh, anybody that wants to read along, one of the nice things about anything Dark Horse is it tends to be really affordable. Uh, I think the omnibus that I got, it's like a a trade paperback size, not comic trade paperback, but like novel trade paperback size. Um, so it's a, a smaller size. I think it was like $25 cover price, maybe even only 20 cover price. Uh, but if you can't find something for cheaper than cover price, you're not trying. Check out instocktrades.com. Uh, they give 42% off on Dark Horse all the time. Uh, I got it at Bull Moose, uh, which is a local store out here, but you can actually go to bullmoose.com also and support a, a small a smaller company. They have a, a handful of stores around Maine. Um, and they give typically 35% off of, of books in general, so it's another good way to get a discount. But check it out because it's been a great read so far, and I can't wait to read more. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks or so to talk about it. Looking forward to it. That was pathetic. Ooh. Nerdy Legion. All right, and now this is where uh, where my producer puts in some good outro music. Now I'm in Maine, far, far away from there. Yeah, and I'm going to rip your throat out.
Mike is a good editor. as verbose as Usagi Ujimbo because I, fa- I found uh, Lone Wolf and Cub to be there's there's several you can go a whole story, uh, chapter in it and there's no nothing spoken yeah the, it's uh, I don't know Usagi has some parts that'll be really wordy and then other parts that will be you know just like you're just saying like it'll go through a lot with very minimal dialogue in it um I see similarities, but I mean, I've only read basically a few issues of Lone Wolf so far, and it does seem to be a lot less, you know, a lot less language and a lot more art telling the story, which kind of sets this tone of kind of the the silent and uh, stoic, you know, personality of a of a Ronin or of a yeah. Ronin like Lone Wolf or like Usagi, where they're actually trying to develop themselves and not just be. Uh, you know, samurais that are now abusing their abilities. Yeah, I think you can go through Lone Wolf and Cub, and it's like, in most, yeah, I think you can summarize it as him yelling most of the time at his son, Dikoro! <laughs> <laughs> Teaching him the samurai way, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful book. And I just got through, I think they just finished up New Lone Wolf and Cub. I got that. That was great. I think that's only eight volumes. Um, and then Dark Horse also had the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub 2100, which is a future version of it, which was which was a comic, which was great. Uh, yeah, Lone Wolf's just the only Usagi I've read is the is that ish, that issue one that I showed you, and he's like, "How much?" and I sent it to you. Yeah, <laughs> that's the only Usagi I've read. You should uh, check out the Dark Horse Omnibus. There, so before Dark Horse, there were seven like trade volumes. They were published by Fantagraphics. If you want to get that, there's a collection of all of them in paperback that's a, a pretty affordable price. Um, and that I would actually, if you wanted that, order it from bullmoose.com because I think it's like 45 bucks instead of 70 bucks, And it's actually a better price than in stock trades because Fantagraphics doesn't have as big of a discount. Yeah, I may um, have to do that. And I looked, and I, I don't know if the Poison Elf trades are cheap at all anywhere. They're kind of rare, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll send you a little, uh, like, info on what to check out with Usagi, but I, once I started reading it, I was just so, so, sold so hard. Um, I, right now, I haven't started yet the third volume, but that's where I'm at, is between the second and third of the Dark Horse Omnibus. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's seven out right now, and I have all of those, and then the eighth one is coming out later this year. And it's actually going to be a collection of, they have a Space Usagi story. Um, they have, and then a couple of other stories that are kind of like off the main thread of the, the long running story. But yeah, if you like Lone Wolf, you'll, you'll like Usagi. Um, and like we were talking about the art and how simplistic art can be so good. It's, you know, it's more cartooning style artwork than, you know, what maybe we're used to in comics. Um, but it may be anthropomorphic animals, but that's just... It's, it's a like good story, it's play. a good story. Exactly, yeah. You'll like it. All right, well, I'm going to let you go. We'll, we'll do this again in two weeks for Lone Wolf. Definitely, I'll catch you later. All right, later. Bye. Thanks.
Nerdy Legion.